Greetings, dear listener, or should I say, dear reader. This is William Hughes, co-host of Everything to Guppy on the Duckfeed Network. For some time now, I've been concerned about the artistic content, or total lack thereof, of the show, in which two stupid adult men try to find new and inventive ways to describe their fluids. And so, as editor of the program, I began about six months ago to include in the description notes for every episode a serialized novel invoking a form that had previously been mastered, of course, by the likes of Dickens, uh, Dumas, and, of course, the Martian's Andy Weir. My novel was titled Hell Comes to Harkness House. Unfortunately, because I don't know how to edit a podcast, no one has ever seen it because I put it in the wrong field of the podcast thingy. So, no one has read it even though I've been writing it for like an hour a week every week for about six months. So now, to commemorate the 500th episode of Everything to Guppy, as if that was something to commemorate, I am including this, the audiobook of the first chapter of Hell Comes to Harkness House. Be warned, listeners, it's not for the faint of mind. Hmm? Okay. Hell Comes to Harkness House by William Hughes A serialized novel in several parts by William Hughes It was on or around June the 7th that the people of the town began to suspect that the sickness buried deep within Harkness House had begun to metastasize at last. There had been rumors for years, of course, the symptom of small-town gossip forming buboes of suspicion that festered upon the village's skin. But when the high-pitched wailing began echoing through the valley, leaking out through the broken windows of the long-sealed manor, not even the most denial-prone of the villagers was able to keep their worries concealed at last. Seated in the Hindward Sepulchre pub, Mayor John Smithson locked eyes with the sheriff from across the crowded room. They had both known that the old baron's mind had been slipping in recent years, that the madness that was his inheritance had finally taken root in fertile soil. Past barons had unleashed this inner manifestation in more predictable ways, violence, debauchery, the imbibing of strange and foreign roots. But the new inhabitant had simply retreated, draping the valley in a leaden silence akin to that found in the depths of a defiled cathedral. Until that night, at least, when the screaming began in earnest. Elsewhere, John Matheson was roused from unpleasant and sanguine sleep as his hounds began baying in sympathy with the unearthly moans emanating from the ruined structure. The town's sullen hunter lived far from the village epicenter. So far removed that the more respectable doyens could assure themselves that the lingering stench of curse surrounding him was sufficiently dispelled. He had been born cursed, as was not uncommon in that time, and had then taken upon himself a cursed vocation as well. In all the world, only his dogs loved him, and even this was leavened with a healthy dosage of fear. They could sense it, baked into his skin, the fell magics that marked him as permanently, and ultimately fatally, 
doomed. And yet, that same hated fate made him bold and potent in matters where self-preservation was considered an undesirable trait. In the year of the crying harvest, it had been the hunter who had driven the anti-vampire from the land, burning his own blood in great quantities to drive the creature back. And the children of the town knew that he would begrudgingly pay for their tears and teeth, powerful components of the various fairy traps he kept strung all through the village's streets. When the knock came, trepidatious authority and all, at his door, Matheson was most of the way through strapping his various armaments to his scarred and grizzled thighs. There were no words exchanged between the hunter and the mare, just a leather bag of gold, pregnant with the stink of bribery, passed from one hand to the next. Matheson left his dogs behind. Instead, they feasted on the entrails of one of the ravens that followed their master everywhere his dark purpose took him. The night was like a tomb built out of a haunted, blood-soaked darkness, as the hunter embarked on his sanguine business once again. His steps wavered slightly as he crossed the haphazardly cobbled streets, still unsteady from the effects of the pitch-black gin he consumed every evening. But even through his poorly distilled senses, the hunter could sense a rising echo on the air, riding the continuing screams like a banshee in search of blood. He wondered idly whether there was a magic at work here, gently fingering the fragment of fox skull he kept on a blackened chain around his neck. He had harvested it himself after a drunken and miserable night spent with his flensing knife in the fox pits on the far edge of the village's territory. It was said by the witch-touched that a fox's skull, properly immersed in lambic, would resonate when grey magics were afoot. As he solemnly watched, the chunk of vulpine cranium hanging from his neck began to kick and twist like a hanged man's final mirthless jig. As though summoned by the very thought, it began to suddenly twist its way around his throat, the silver chain digging into the folds of fat that hung like ulcerous fruit from his chin's mottled skin. Tearing the bauble from his neck with a hornedy grunt, the hunter put his head down and began trudging once again into the sickly sweet claws of the inky, tenebrous night. Across the village, in a hovel that was distinctly hovel-shaped, a secret witch awoke. Obscured by a web of eldritch secrecy that obfuscated her identity, even from herself, she immediately felt the keening of a secret sister spirit calling to her from across the hangry ether. Sympathy scraping at her toenails, she keened helplessly alongside that orphaned wail. The trouble with being a haunted midwife, she thought, grabbing the bag from near her door, is that the devil makes sure you always deliver. And yet, even as this host of damned souls found themselves spiraling inexorably toward the doom in the castle, another figure watched these developments with a sense of concern and unease. He had seen the signs before, of course. His whiskers twitched in pain and memory at the thought of the madness that had gone down in Herricksburg fourteen years previous. His paws moved, slightly nervous, over the cool plastic handlebars of his cherry-red motorcycle then dashed into action as its tiny motor roared into adorable life. Evil might be afoot in Harkness Manor, but that only meant that it was time for Harvey Mouse, Daredevil, the bravest little mouse in the whole wide world, 
to do what he did best. Throughout the village, clocks began to chime hexteen, announcing that the bewitching hour had arrived at longest last. In hen houses throughout the valley, chickens began pecking dementedly at their own eggs, blood gushing from the crushed shells. One unlucky fowl moved too slowly. The tentacle that oozed from the cracks in its own fresh-laid egg was around its neck as quick as its lidless eye could blink. The bird struggled briefly before a careless movement snapped its fragile neck, and with slow deliberation, the child began pulling its parent into the shadowed recesses of its red-tinged and hungry shell. Everywhere in the village, entropy began to slurp the margins of reality into its unrelenting and toddler-like grip. In a dim basement, obscured from the eye of both man and dog, a broken clock was right three times in a single day. Now running ponderously up the hill, the hunter felt the cobblestones twist beneath his feet, the cracks in each reforming themselves to spell out his deepest and grumpiest secrets. Scholars have long speculated on what the hardest words to run on might be. The hunter could now tell them through grizzled experience, that neither patricide nor calamari gave his hobnailed feet much purchase. Seeking to catch his juniper-laced breath, he ducked back down into an alley, only to be confronted by some sort of roly-poly little rat-faced child. Hissing, teeth exposed, it ducked back down toward a well-lit door, even as dogs in the moonlight suddenly emerged and began to give chase. The hunter watched, unflinching but weary, as the beast devoured the shadow child, then melted back into the night from which whom's womb they had emerged. There were times, even now, when he wished that he could have a bodyguard of his own, if only to spare him hellish nightmares like this. He no longer found these sorts of things amusing anymore. Far across town, the gutters of the village vibrated as a tiny red motorcycle roared across them, heroism boiling in its wake. Harvey's eyes scanned the horizons, both for crows and for the scabrous light that was a telltale indication that the fell barons had cast their grim and sightless orbs across the village's frightened mane. He knew he would be able to handle any lesser demons, with nothing more than his own limited mystical powers, the local hunters on the ground, and a bit of murine moxie and luck. But if the barons had chosen the village for one of their sanguine and joyless experiments— he would likely need to call upon the powers and blessings of the big cheese before this night was through. And beneath them all, the secret witch stalked the undersewers, boots caked in muck and unearthly contempt. Her mind flicked nervously through the lessons that had been imparted to her in her years serving at the hoofed feet of the large matron. Wormwood would stifle the lethal cry of a foundling born with a mandrake for a tongue, a silver pacifier would calm the tremors of the pallid king's get. There were innumerable prophecies detailing the appointed birth of such and such child, spawn of whomever, destined master of all the nations of the earth. Far fewer concerned themselves with what to feed such an infernal scion, whose stomach had been upset by the tumultuous process of being born to its inevitable throne. She trudged wearily past the coffins that had been shamefully hidden in the sprawling catacomb of pipes by lazy or terrified gravediggers unable to keep up with their dark demands. The secret witch was distantly sympathetic to their plight, 
She knew no one in the town's slipshod government would believe the diggers when they reported the massive influx of bodies they received, provenance unknown, every single Throg's Day night. Untouched by the power of the hangry ether, they were unable to see the corpse trees that loomed above the village's streets, always ready to drop a rotting load of tainted and moldering fruit back into the world from the depths below. Unable to cope with the influx of strangely warm death flesh, the overworked gravediggers simply shoved the bodies into cheaply constructed coffins and sailed them silently down the bleak river to the under-sewer below, where they now watched the secret witch trudge past in quiet but ornery misery. Far above her, the hunter suddenly paused, less than a mile from the craggy hill that led its winding way up to Horkness House. He could smell something on the air, breaking its way past two dozen years of dedicated snuff abuse, a scent of rot, misery, and oats. There it was, the tell-tale clip-clop of a body as accustomed to boots as it was to hooves. The hunter watched, semi-turgid with fear, as a maned head rounded the corner ahead of him and the werehorse hoved into view. As it charged at him, finger hooves roiling, the hunter tried to remember the rhyme his mentor had once attempted to beat into his brain. Claws of banshee use the silver. Hooves of murder toss some gilder. The sharp teeth of a hungry, hungry human suddenly clamped down on his leg with the full power of a horse's mighty jaw. He had let himself be distracted, and now he would pay the price. With a mighty hrunt, the beast flung the hunter across the street and through the window of an abandoned toy shop, shuddered during the great joy riots of the previous year. A toy soldier, bayonet still dripping blood, snapped as the hunter's weary body crashed into it, propelled by near equine levels of force. Startled by the sudden influx of motion, rats began streaming from the dollhouses along the north wall, scraps of doll intestines still hanging from their mouths. Rolling to a stop, the hunter coughed in the dust. Black and malignant phlegm shined in the cold night light, reassuring him that no internal organs had been breached. As a maned head suddenly blocked the light through the broken window, he reached into his pouch and began desperately pulling coins out, hoping for a trace of gold. He briefly contemplated the sack of lucre that had been handed to him by the mayor earlier that night, but quickly dismissed it. It was an open, festering secret that all currency that moved through the burger's office was dipped in a bath of bone acid in order to leech away its guilt. Instead, he began hunting through the coin purse secreted away in the gouge that had once been toothed out of his abdomen by a rampaging barracuda wolf. Roughly pushing his filthy fingers through the flap of skin that hung over his secret belly treasure, the hunter flicked across each coin, feeling for the telltale weight of gold, even as the creature shoved again and the wall in front of him began to buckle. His hand finally closed on the distinctive shape of a Carolingian gilder, certified gold by the power of a curse placed upon the Carolingian king, even as the werehorse's nostrils flared in preparation of releasing its deadly, demoralizing, goofy gas. The hunter curled the coin the way a drowning child might, desperately, but with surprising and tiny strength. It skipped across the dusty floor once, 
crashed into the severed sole of one of the more raggedy toy soldiers and ricocheted directly into the werehorse's flaring nostril maw. With a deafening anti-bang, the metal reacted with the creature's noxious mix of internal fluids and external fluids, igniting in an ochre explosion of charred and unctuous meat. The hunter wondered briefly who the creature had been before the ribald lycanthropic magic had worked its dark ways on its flesh. But then the last of his wonder expired at long last, and he never wondered again. In his insensate exhaustion, the hunter failed to notice the gutters of the building across the way begin to gently shake. Even had he, it was unlikely he still possessed the carefree spirit to recognize the telltale hum of the Yamaha 67 mouse-sized motorcycle's distinctive engine. The bike had had two previous owners, a kind old woman who had bought it for any future mice she might befriend, and a giggling warlock who had coveted not the bike itself, but the opportunity to drain small amounts of joy out of an already joyless world. The old woman had died painfully. A curse shoved seven feet down her two-foot throat. But the warlock had died worse. It was amazing the things that tiny furred hands could do with a sword no larger than a toothpick when the righteous rage of battle was unleashed. Harvey now spent every thought's day afternoon carefully maintaining the bike, ensuring that its tiny, candy-powered engine remained in tippy-top shape. Said effort made it doubly upsetting when the bike suddenly hitched beneath him, and its exhaust began to cough, wheeze, and whisper obscure but guttural racial slurs. Flipping the lever that moved his protective goggles into their third eyeball perception filter, Harvey Rista looked downward, his stomach weeping at the hideous sight. He watched with revulsion as the sickly green brain sloshed back and forth within the transparent cranium of the creature possessing and poisoning his beloved bike, a skullless gremlin, most lethal and relentless of hex mechanical docents, leering with homicidal emoluments. The gremlin reached a transparent hand up and passed it over Harvey's goggles, infecting them instantly with its lubrious glitching. Fearing the coming darkness, Harvey slammed on the brakes, but was horrified to realize that the gremlin's magic had not closed the device's filter into the eleventh world, but opened them even further. For any mind that had not been taught to withstand the brunt of the psychic onslaught by the silent masters of the Cheddar Monastery, the shock would have meant instant mental vaporization. Even with his training, Harvey's tiny brain reeled as a million horngry ghosts suddenly appeared above him, floating in the stomach-pale sky over the hideously infected town. At first, he felt the slightest relief, seeing that their attention, knife-eyed and malingering, was not focused on his adorable but whiskered body. But then he realized that the unquiet spirits were cued in a line stretching a billion sins deep to enter the manor over the hill. Harvey knew, better than most, that that level of clustered evil would violate the safety standards issued by the Celestial Fire Marshal, triggering a visit from the Holy Auditors. And while he had no idea why the forces of Armageddon wished to lure in the high heaven's hangriest bureaucrats, he knew it could bode no good. Expelling the gremlin with the last drops of blessed engine oil hidden in the thimble around his neck, 
Harvey gunned the bike's instantly restored engine, streaming his way through the night like a mouse out of heaven. Bloodied and weary, despite the night itself still being in its grim and colicky infancy, the hunter nevertheless felt his soul lighten ever so slightly as he trudged up the street and came, at last, to the elaborate and foreboding gate of Harkharkhus. He turned, though, in sudden shock, as a woman hole near him suddenly shifted. He watched and stood mute, with a mixture of horror and professional courtesy, as a hidden midwife, resplendent in battle robes and humongous with slimes, dragged herself out of the darkness below. As she scraped the more scrapable of the mucuses from her garment, the two stood before the long road winding its way up to the hainted manor, both harboring suspicions as to why the other might be there. Their two orders had long had a professional understanding between them. Hunters needed monsters to be birthed, and midwives needed them to be slain, maintaining the whims of the dark deity supply and demand. The hunter was just about to shatter the groaning silence when he was beaten to the beating by a tiny whining sound, as though a small but heroic mouse was suddenly driving toward him on a very small motorcycle, or some other simile of similar force. From the corner of his eye, he saw the secret witch perform a few rote identity bindings with her placental-stained fingers, masking the darker aspects of her aura, even as a sudden ting from a nearby gutter announced the launching of a tiny rodent missile directly into their midst. Even the secret witch couldn't completely hide her awe as a small warrior, clad in fur, goggles, and a functional but adorable leather jacket, kicked off the seat of his motorcycle, flipping into the air even as the bike itself skidded to a perfect stop on the ground. With an adorable, Yah! he hurled a sword the size of a toothpick past the hunter's head. The vortigast that had been creeping up behind him, hungry to suckle on his misery marrow, screamed as its holy magics rent it into ugly dust. As his blade flew magically back into his hand, the mouse landed in a motion that became a simple bow, aimed at the both of them. "'My name is Harvey Mouse,' his squeaking voice said, breaking the silence. "'And if I'm going to stop the apocalypse, I'm going to need your help.' And as the three doomed souls stood there, locked in this state of uneasy truce before the gates of the great and sinister hoose, the sky above them roiled and squeezed with unhidden malevolence. The gates of Heck were now six inches dilated and growing by the minute. The fell barons laughed inside their comfortable cages. The great goat of the apocalypse let out its warning bleat, and the question hang on the lips of reality itself. What rough beast, its hour come round at last, was now slouching toward Hoopty Hut to be born. End of chapter one.